Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Hi everybody, welcome to the uh, Magic Academy podcast. I'll try not to laugh because it makes me laugh. John Fletcher here. Rusty's gone too big time now for podcasts. He's moving in a different sphere. Um, although he really wanted to do this one, he phoned me last night pretty agitated. Tamara Taylor, thank you for uh, joining us and welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah, that, well, awesome. We've, we've already had a, a cool chat, mainly about dogs and a little bit about what's been happening recently. But let's start there. What's, what's sort of been happening with you through COVID this um, it appears from the outside looking in, there's been a lot going on in your life. Yeah, which is weird because we've been in lockdown, so there should have been nothing going on, should there? <laughs> um, so I started <clears throat> started the kind of lockdown bit, trying to do online coaching for sharks. So um, not knowing when the season was going to start again, still uh, in place as head coach um, on paper anyway. So that was. Honestly, probably one of the bigger challenges I found in my coaching is trying to do online skills to a group of people who are all on mute, all with different bits of equipment, like some in their garden, some in their living room. Um, so that was, yeah, it was hard and, and challenging, but yeah, really quite rewarding. So that's how it started. Um, then it progressed to uh, not being involved in sharks towards the end of um the kind of lockdown bit and now I'm a player coach at Surrey's so that's been my kind of last probably five months little uh, little progression and obviously in amongst that walking the dog trying to help Phil Kearns um, do like all of the stuff with uh, the coach development that he was the only one in our department that was um, not furloughed so trying to help with bits and pieces there um, and trying to keep sane really in between yeah, I mean, how, how important is the walking dog bit? Uh, from a fellow dog walker, um, I walk the dog when I'm at home, which is pretty much most days now, twice a day. Uh, I, I mean, I find it invaluable, especially around this thinking piece and making sense of stuff and sometimes calling people. Well, what's your dog walking experience like? I wish it was like that. It's not quite so relaxing. Um, <laughs> uh, we've got a Vizsla and he's absolutely nuts. <laughs> so as soon as you've gone to put the harness on and you're out the door he just wants to drag you to wherever it is that we're going he doesn't know where we're going but wherever it is it's really exciting um 
and he doesn't like listening to humans. He's all over dogs, loves other dogs. So as soon as he spots another dog, he's like, I need to be there. You need to let go of this lead and I need to be over there. Um, so you're always on your guard because he's, quite, he's really strong. So if he catches you off guard, he's like got your shoulder out of place, pulling you to go and see another dog. Um, so it's not, it's not really that relaxing. I'll be honest mm -hmm. with you. I'd love it. To, I'd love to say I go to the beach and we walk <laughs> and he runs free and I, you know, use that time to reflect, but I don't. I'm stressed about where the dogs are and can I get my dog back? <laughs> Maybe we need to swap dogs. Our dog would be opposite. She's like, she's like, oh, yeah. uh, she's using me up, but she's pretty chill. She just wants to just go and mooch around a bit and often she, she'll go into the woods and I'll just kind of walk around them and then she'll kind of catch me at the end of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's good feedback from me. Anyway, let, um, and we will come on to the RFU bit. Uh, clearly there's been a lot happening around the RFU and your current role and what's happening there, which is, which is really interesting. But um, just to stay on the, uh, the, the, how long were you at Sharks for? Uh, 14 years. How many games do you think you played in 14 years? That's a long time. God, a lot. Yeah, a lot <laughs> from, t so from 2005. And then I played one season at Litchfield in, it was 2012, 2013 season, because I was working in Worcester um, and then came back to Sharks. So yeah, I must've played most of them. I probably had two seasons where I was injured with an um, ACL and an ankle injury. Oh, really? so, I mean, that's a huge time, a huge commitment. What, what stuff did you notice about it at the start that was different to the bits sort of stuff at the end? Where's the, where's the domestic experience been over the last however many years, like 14 years? So when I first joined in 2005, we were based out of Thursk Rugby Club. So we were Thursk Sharks. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's basically in the middle of a race course. Yeah. So... Yeah no protection around it so training sessions on a Tuesday Thursday would be pretty brutal in the winter um and then that drive back up the motorway was uh, was pretty brutal as well um we had we had a load we had a really good team actually we had a load of um girls that played at Hoffle College so there was a really strong cohort of boys and girls there at the time um and we had quite a few who were in the England under 19s at the time so people like, well, Katie McLean came through Hoffle College, um, Ros Crowley, Michaela Sunniford, Hannah Shield, a whole bunch of them. Um, so we had quite a sort of young, exciting team mixed in with some really good club players. Um, but everyone was super amateur, if that's even a, a phrase. It was literally turn up, you know, do what we could, try and check train in between. But unless you were playing internationally, you, you probably didn't really have that same programming there was no strength and conditioning coach you know none of that kind of extra support stuff um and we relocated to Malden so we decided we needed to have a like a, a rugby club not a sports club that kind of tighter support network um I went and spoke to Malden and one of the other girls went and spoke to Acklam someone went and spoke to somebody else and then we just sort of pulled together our ideas and ended up at Malden um and that was back in the day where it was small little clubhouse just two pitches literally in the middle of a housing estate um and honestly they were probably the best times because it was that real rugby family feeling um there was a load of the guys who'd never had you know a women's team at the club and to be honest at the beginning they were really skeptical but by the end of our time like at that 
particular base. They were just loving it. We had some really good supporters um, amongst some of the older guys in the club and a really good sort of relationship with the junior sections. And Jo Hull at the time was coaching us and she did a great job of kind of linking in, you know, I think the whole club and all of the, the sort of the coaches across there. Um, we did a lot of sort of fundraising. We joined in with some of the kids activity and we ended up actually training um, against the men's team. So just for team runs towards the end um and that yeah i think probably in terms of fun and enjoyment factor those years were probably the best again we were definitely not professional in terms of you know what we were capable of doing off the pitch because of everyone working um but we had an awesome culture an awesome team bond between us and we actually came third um in our first season back in the Premiership. So we got relegated, first season back in, we came third, which was, I think personally, all due to the fact that we were relegated, we won loads of games, we got our confidence up, we loved each other, we were totally in it for like, right, this is it. Um, and when we played that, yeah, that first season, we didn't really care who, you know, Saris were or Richmond were or Wasps or any of the kind of big names at the time. We were like, come on, let's do it. Um, and then that's sort of when we moved to the stadium, that kind of club feel for me personally kind of dissipated a bit because it's a massive venue. You know, it's a great, it is a great facility, um, but you don't have that kind of clubhouse banter and you're not in and amongst it. You're, you're training a bit removed because you're on those back pitches through the gates, around the corner, down the track. Um, you're not, in the changing room for as long. The changing room is quite small on the outside of the stadium and all of that. It's just my personal opinion. Um, I think kind of affects a little bit of the bonding. We've got, sorry, not we anymore. That's sad, isn't it? Um, Sharks have got um, players coming from all over the place. So, you know, from as far as Cumbria, Hull, Newcastle, Darlington, Leeds. So unless you've got that time to kind of have a catch up, and I guess normally you do that in the changing room, wouldn't you? spend ages putting if it's a cold windy day you'd be like oh just strapping up <laughs> uh, but you catch up with everyone that you wouldn't you know normally have been able to see because they live miles away um and I think we lost that a little bit at the stadium because we didn't have that sort of connection time it was turn up train take your boots off get in your car go home because you got to go to work the next morning um so it's, yeah that kind of a really big transition I think which I'm sure lots of clubs went through and then obviously leading into the new women's premiership with lo loads of funding from the RFU in 2017, loads more money available to help with support staff. So we got more support staff in, everything was starting to get a little bit more what people call professional, isn't it? Like whether it is or not, I don't know, but we had more support staff, more, um, not, not facilities, we were, there was always really good facilities there, um, but just a little bit more moving in the direction of professionalism just without money just to jump in there because you made a bit of a funny face around the word professionalism what does professionalism mean to you what what stuff would be important maybe never for years playing for england um smithy always used to say the girls are professional but with a small p not a capital p that was his kind of way of describing it um because really in rugby terms what professional means is that there's money changing hands, doesn't it? But we also talk about oh, your professional appearance or your, you know, that side of 
being professional, behaving in a professional manner. And that's different. That doesn't require money. That's just about either your behavior or you know, dress or whatever it is that you're, you're, you're talking about. And I think, I think people have got confused over the years thinking that the England women's team were professional as in there was money changing hands and that was, that was the girls' jobs. So I, I've always struggled with that kind of way. We are professional because we behave in a professional manner. And apart from the money, we're doing all that we can to be professional rugby players. But actually, it's not our profession. So, yeah, that's why I've always found that word a little bit. Yeah, I guess it is. And it's, and it's definitely overplayed. I'm, I mean, my take on it is that professional is an attitude, really, and it's a behaviour. So I, I think it's like, some, uh, I, I don't think you need to be necessarily paid to be professional um i think lots of people when they talk about professional that's what they mean as it's got good resources and it's well structured it's well organized got good processes and maybe there's a transactional bit and i i can understand that but to me the professional stuff is around people's attitudes and their and their you know yeah their determination and their t- togetherness i mean it, it is interesting by the way big shout out to joe hull and who i knew joe really well when she was at northumber university i was a youth development officer for northumber and she was an absolute legend we used to howl <laughs> laughing together um and i was fortunate enough to coach with her as well and she was a really talented coach because she yeah. just got people I, I i thought she was uh she had good spider senses around what to say when to say and how to say it which is yeah fundamentally that would be a big part of coaching so big shout out for her yeah uh, just it just in terms of just trying to stay in the here and now stuff well, what have you noticed uh, you haven't been to south as much i assume no. Um, and you mentioned earlier you got a 20 minute ch- charge around on Saturday but what sort of stuff have you noticed that's different uh, they've uh, won the Tyrrells for the last four years haven't they or they, haven't they been uh, for the first two, two years and then last year they were in first position but everything got declared null and void yeah so I think um, I did actually I, tell you, I did notice that when I arrived was there's a there's a feeling around that of like yeah but we were winning, so we were first, which I completely understand because I still talk about Sharks being sixth, even yeah. though you know, the RFU declared that none of the results counted. Um, but yeah, um, I would hold on I was in first at that period of time as well. <laughs> so what have you noticed? What's the stuff? Um, yeah, what, you know, what, so when you walked in a bit and you were hanging around for a relatively short period of time, yeah, what was the stuff that you were noticing? It's actually quite, it's difficult to answer that question because because of all the, the COVID guidelines, I think what I kind of walked into a few weeks ago was very, very different to had I, you know, had I been at Surrey's last year. Um, you know, the, the facilities aren't open in the same way. You're temperature checked, everybody's socially distanced. And the actual structure of the training session, there was very, very strict guidelines from the RFU in terms of, 15 minutes of handling, sanitize all the equipment, two minutes of contact here, four minutes of line out, five minutes of scrum, non-contested, six minutes of contact, like very, very structured um, and not structured in a way that I guess as a head coach, you would necessarily choose to have those activities. Um, so I think yeah, I think I've come into something that's that doesn't look like the Saracens way at the moment. And obviously all clubs are going through that same process. Um, but it's kind of, it's probably made the transition a bit easier because everything's so weird. 
um, with like with the setup because of the COVID regulations. Um, I haven't kind of I haven't missed what I had, or I, I'm not comparing the two because they're incomparable at the moment with yeah with all the regulations. Um, you might not be able to answer this, um, and that's cool if you can't. I mean, what stuff? Say it was relatively normal, so similar to what it was before. What sort of stuff do you think you would have been walking into around the Saracen stuff? So, team that's at the top, full of internationals, um, clearly associated with the men's team, who are, you know, hugely successful as well. What sort of stuff were you expecting? Um. But, you know, I was really nervous about the whole thing because you know, I've played for Sharks for so many years and you get into a habit of uh, not thinking very kindly of certain other opposition and Saris have always smashed us, always. Um, and they've always been a team that were like, oh, come on, like, just, just got to hold on to a tiny piece of victory here and that'll be enough um, because they've always been so good, like, for, for years, you know, before the Tyrrells Premier 15s came in and when the Premiership was running before that, they've always been one of the top teams. Um, so you kind of build an impression of something that is, oh, well, it, you know, it's this beast over here and um, there's no way I, I, little old me would be able to fit into that. And my first training session, I was absolutely cacking my pants. You know, there's all the emotion of it. But then I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to fit into this. Like, is this me? Um, and I actually really enjoyed it and I've enjoyed the sessions I've done. I was terrified on Saturday um, that I wasn't ready to play and I was going to let everyone down and, you know, the usual doubts that I have as a player. Um, well, which I is interesting, isn't it? Because you've got 115 caps, been to, uh, four World Cups um, and you've got self-doubt. Um, I mean, you've yeah, you talked about that a number of times. I've heard you. I mean, yeah, why? Why would you think that? I don't know. I think my I've just kind of lived my definitely my rugby playing days, just not wanting to let people down and not wanting to fail and yeah, not not let the team down. So it's um it kind of drives you to work harder, but it's also pretty draining um, to constantly be worried and and thinking that you're not good enough. Um, I, yeah, but you know, I did an interview from a hundredth cap with uh, Stephen Jones and. He pretty much asked me the same question. He was like, well, how... Oh, no, I don't think you're telling the truth. I, I don't understand how you can get 100 caps for your country and not think that you're great. And then I remember thinking, like, oh, God, I mustn't tell people that, um, like, I doubt myself because, like, they think I'm lying or making it up or something. And I remember coming out of that interview thinking, oh, God, I, I need to be really careful about that because, obviously, I, I don't want it to come across as not being authentic because that is how I feel but maybe that's not what people expect and I kind of went through a period of thinking well I need to kind of hide that and I need to put on a bit of a persona of yeah I'm absolutely fine about it a bit like an actor you know play a part um but actually inside I'm stressed as hell and worried that I'm not good enough and worried I'm yeah gonna make a mistake and let people down um and, and, and yeah. is that quite common in the conversations you have with players around the changing room and is that, um, yeah, what's your sense on that? Is there other people who are feeling like this? Um, there, yeah, there will be. And I, I wonder how many people show it and how many people hide it, given that if I can give off the impression that I'm not worried and I'm not doubtful, then 
I wonder how many other people are doing it because, you know, especially back in the day, if you doubted yourself, it was a massive sign of weakness. It probably still is. You know, people look at it and go, well, well, if you doubt yourself, then maybe I need to start looking for reasons to doubt you as well. Um, which obviously isn't what you need as that player. You need somebody to come and have a chat with you, look at some footage, you know, try and build your confidence or, you know, help you with triggers and, and all of that kind of stuff to kind of keep your confidence up. Um, but I think, yeah, it's still a bit taboo that why would you be playing international rugby and not think that you're the greatest? Yeah, I mean, it, I just want to stay on this a bit, but my understanding of own self-doubt is it's it's normal. Everybody, everybody has it. Some people would have it in slight, you know, would sort of dial it up a bit, as in they would probably have a bit more. But self-doubt is a is a is a normal reaction to the to the environment of that you're in, um, and everybody has it. I mean, coaches would have it, and now you've transitioned a bit into the coaching stuff. You probably realised actually I've not got my coaching hat on, and uh, I've actually got some self-doubt about this in terms of me as a coach and this, you know, and how this game's going to go and stuff. So I do think it's, I think it's completely normal. Yeah. See, there you go. It's normal. I've got 115 caps and I doubt myself. It's normal. Yeah, I mean, it, there'd be very few players. I mean, there'd be, and I did admire players that actually, you know, didn't probably have, um, or, or, or didn't appear to be that um, affected by, you know, not well, not the training. Most people sort of sail through that a bit, but definitely around the games. I was like, wow, well, you know, but the the vast majority of players that I coach would be similar to you. However, it would be dialed up and dialed down based around, you know, um their confidence and their um and their experiences, I guess. I I think it's really helpful when you talk about it as a team, just completely normalise it. I mean, what's the best environment you've been in around that where actually the mental skills stuff's been it's been at the forefront and people have been able to share some stuff and get some strategies around being able to deal with it. Hmm. Good question. <laughs> um, I, actually, uh, I actually did an interview for somebody's uh, level four long-term assignment on uh, mental skills just this week. Um, and we sort of talked about, yeah, that, that side of it and the teams I've been in. Um, I think, especially with international, we've had, we've always had sports psychologists, but the discussion we had the other day in this interview was around, is sports psychology and mental skills, are they, is it the same, are we looking at the same things or is a lot of that sports psych around kind of slightly more generic stuff and, you know, looking at performance under pressure and, you know, personality traits and that kind of stuff that, that seemed to be most of the sports psych that I've had internationally. Um, it hasn't hasn't felt like it's kind of been bespoke for me, or if I've if I've reached out to get support, I haven't felt that it's kind of hasn't worked for me, or it hasn't clicked, or you know, however you want to say it. I'm not saying it's the sports psych's fault at all. Um, I just haven't found that kind of help that I've kind of craved. Um, I think what what's the I mean what's your what's your why around that and then just as you're thinking about it also consider if you could design it so you know you're now head of all performancey stuff across world rugby what sort of stuff would you be thinking about sports psych and developing mental skills 
But the first question is why? Like, so why yeah, does it work for, for, for you? Um, I don't know. I found, I, I've definitely found some of the psych stuff quite, either quite generic, as in I've heard it quite a lot of times, like the same sort of presentations, or we've probably done a little bit of it and it's been interesting, but then there's not been the capacity to continue that theme. Um, and this might purely because of the circumstance that I was in as a non-paid um, player, as in working full time. So the time that we had in camp with England was pretty precious. And I understand that um, priorities were probably given to, to pitch stuff in terms of technical, tactical, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and the, the mental side of things was definitely looked at, don't get me wrong. Um, but I wonder whether there was just not really the time capacity to give it as much detail. Probably be interesting to find out what it's like at the moment um, with the girls who are in full time, uh, that sort of group of 28, to see whether that's changed and there is a little bit more kind of guidance and support. Um, I think I think that's part of the reason it didn't work for me. I didn't have a kind of a consistent enough, I mean, our sports likes change probably every year or every other year, so that probably didn't help to make a connection with someone. Um, but I just didn't, I think I craved, I wanted someone to tell me how I could be better and how I could stop worrying all the time and how I could make sure that my preparation was consistent so that I could perform like at my highest level all the time. And yeah, I wanted someone to tell me and help me. And I, I just felt like I didn't, maybe I, my expectation was too high and I thought I'd get a load of answers and I'd have like, okay, here's a theory, let's put it into practice. Um, and I, I just ended, I remember having a conversation with a sports psych and then coming out of it thinking, again, I need to just not bring this up again about my lack of confidence or like my worries. I'll just, I'll just push it to the back of my mind and I'll just crack on because yeah, it's, it's opening a can of worms and I haven't got time to deal with it. And I don't know if people can help me. Well, which is interesting, isn't it? Because you, you're probably going to have self-doubt about the thing you have self-doubt about. So to me, you, <laughs> you, you would just be layering on some stuff. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah. I'm, 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 I mean, clearly, you know, some of the times you haven't had a particularly positive experience. And, and that's also my sense. I work for the RFU as well. And we, we kind of played at it a bit. Uh, Matt Tomes, James Bell were excellent. And they did get into some work and specifically with some teams around some programs and get into supporting some individuals. but. What I know is about England rugby is they just didn't invest in it. So to me, they didn't value it. Um, so, I'd, yeah. And, and I, I do think it's changing. I do think it would be interesting to maybe talk to some of the girls and, and the lads around that now. Um, I mean, at last, I think we're rugby as a sport. I think we're miles behind other sports in terms of their, um, their intention around psychological support, I guess. Do you, right. You're now designing it. <laughs> so you're you're responsible for it um in any environment that you can think about but what sort of stuff would you would you be thinking about um i do think and this actually came from the conversation i had on monday about this so i'm glad i'm primed um we were saying basically how we think that coaches need more support with with how they can support players with mental skills so in terms of on-pitch stuff you want your coaches to have really good technical and tactical knowledge and understanding, but how much investment is there in that coach with 
how they can support players with the mental side of the game. So all the stuff that we talk about, like re resilience and things like that, um, do we know how to support players or challenge them or stretch them to be able to improve those skills on pitch wise? Obviously, I think the off pitch is important as well. But the, the conversation that I had on Monday was around that as coaches, do we do we know enough about how to do that? Because there's a lot of expectation on coaches to be, you know, the coach, the mentor, the first aider, the the support, the dad, the mum. And probably that's one that, yeah, that maybe, I think, well, not maybe, definitely coaches need more support with. Um, and whether that's having a dedicated, whatever you want to call them, mental skills person, sports psych, you know, a professional in that, if they could be working alongside the coach and the players, I mean, that would be the dream, wouldn't it? That you're getting that kind of, that connection between the, the two, three groups. Um, yeah, I think 2014, to be fair, before that World Cup, we had a sports site come in and um, she, we didn't see her for the first year. She was there, but she was like this shadow in the background. Um, and she said she was working with the staff and we were like, all oh, right, okay. Any danger you want to work with us? Like, we're the players. And I remember thinking like, oh, this is a bit weird. Um, and then as we got closer to the World Cup, she started doing the workshops and small group stuff and the biggest thing for me me personally that I got from her and her interactions was we had a leadership group um it was chosen by the players so you basically got like elected into it so it was a it was a really representative group of of people rather than you know oh it'll be you it'll be you it'll be you picked by coaches or management um so it had the buy-in of the rest of the squad and she basically acted as a sort of communication liaison between that leadership group and the coaching staff and the management. And there was a, a really clear communication pathway. If there was something that we felt needed to change and we didn't have the confidence to go to a member of staff, perhaps that, that information would get passed on. And that through her kind of being a, a medium or a, a, like a middleman type of person, I think that, brought us closer together as a whole group um and that's the first time I've ever first and last time I've ever seen that kind of synergy or been part of that where I felt like the players needs were listened to and it wasn't taken as sort of anything against selection or what and you know people were weren't doing their jobs right it was just like look we've thought about this and we need help with this and you know on the flip side of it you'd have people complaining about like what what the soup choice was or something and uh, and that would be like no you need you need to get back in your box about that so it was it was quite a nice open kind of communication exchange and whether that's the job of a sports psychologist or not I don't know but it certainly helped us I think mentally feel like we were more joined up as, as a group as in like as a whole group not just a group of players yeah, well, that's interesting. It's certainly on the leadership group. Uh, I've got mixed views around it. I'm not a big fan, generally. Um, I, I don't think it's done that well. It's often picked by coaches. It's often based around experience. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's interesting that, with the, that it was a player group. You felt has Zord had good representation as well, supported by the, mm. by the Sykes. Um, I, I, mean, I sometimes think groups like that prevent good conversations, if I'm honest. So... 
Um, how, however, that's that's. It. I, I mean, my two pennies here for Forest want. Uh, I think the side should be on the pitch more. So I'm going to yeah. put a number on it: eighty-one percent on the pitch, ninety percent in the classroom or off the pitch type stuff. So um, I think generally yeah. sites like do do some very cool stuff in the classroom where I'm thinking maybe we should do this when we're training. Um, and then I think you've mentioned it, you've referenced it. It's got to be bespoke. It's got to be to the to the needs of the individual. Um, yeah, that's the sort of stuff that I've kind of noticed. And the vast majority of the psych stuff that I've seen done really well is the player don't really know it's been done. It's kind of just happening around them. There's this sort of Darren Brownie type experience. And the, yeah, I think sometimes the psych stuff's too, like, yeah, it's probably too academic a bit. Um, yeah. It's based on a theory or model, you know, and it's, yeah, the players are not quite understanding it. But anyway, that's just my sense. Since you've yeah, mentioned no. it, Let's let let's go into the England stuff. Um, yeah, what sort of three words to describe your England career? What would they be? Oh God! Um, oh God's only two. <laughs> oh dear God! <laughs> um, oh, uh, high, low. And defining. Yeah, nice. Why did you say hi first? What stuff you're thinking about when you when you said that? Um, I was thinking of like the successes. So the first word I was gonna say was tough, and then I was like, well, of course it's tough. That's yeah, it's playing in place, So <laughs> delete that word, and then I thought of like the success and the friendships and and what I've gained from it. So the in terms of like experiences and being able to travel and you know representing my country um yeah so that was my highs and then obviously <laughs> i mean i i say this quite a lot when i do um talks to kind of kids or well, to be honest anyone business people as well you always look at at sports people and you only ever see the gold medals or the trophies and that's all you ever hear about you might hear about their injuries but you've got you know I've got a however long career I've got a 14 year career with England 13 year career with England and I'm defined by oh, four world cups one gold three silvers some six nations but all the actual time spent in those periods of success is very, very small compared to some of the low bits, some of the really low bits, some of the really tough bits. Um, and we don't really talk about them enough. You're just like, oh, there's that girl. Yeah, she won a World Cup. That's really cool. Well, here's your opportunity. What, what, I mean, what, what was your biggest law? What sort of stuff would you want to share with the, with the hundreds uh, of thousands of people that listen to these podcasts? <laughs> uh, definitely injury stuff like especially inside my head when you think when I'm playing and I'm being selected I doubt myself imagine how I feel when I've been out for 12 months with an ACL reconstruction and I've watched the girls win and lose and thought oh I don't know if I can do that anymore um so that that side of things is really hard obviously selection you know as a coach, now as a coach, selection is just one of those, can be one of those really awful things. I think if, if you haven't had decent conversations with people so that they know exactly where they stand, if you haven't supported them well with their work-ons, 
with things that as a coach you're seeing that they need to do more of if you haven't if they're unaware and not not being supported well enough I think selection can be a really really tough thing um and I've definitely been on the end of those kinds of situations where I felt like I not that I didn't know but that I didn't I couldn't change it I, I wasn't in control of of yeah being selected not being selected it was a kind of it felt like it flew out of my hands um so yeah so those kinds of lows and and how do you think people can support each other better i mean you you know i'm aware and you know in terms of some of your injury stuff and we actually had a couple of conversations when you have been injured well what's the yeah you know reflecting what sort of stuff would you want that was different that would have been more helpful from people around you um for me personally i was quite i was quite isolated from like the england setup because of living in the northeast obviously all the england stuff happening down south um my surgery was up here as well so i did i didn't go to any camps i wasn't i didn't do any rehab there i was literally sort of away from it all for the year and you know people kept me in place a little bit i think smithy got me to do some um some line out stuff but for me personally i still felt like a massive outsider to that group so mentally to try and kind of get back into it um yeah i had to fight pretty hard with my own demons to to believe or to at least pretend to believe um that i could make it back in so i think everyone's different some people will need some time away some people will need to get gently brought back in some people just need to be in it completely immersed crutching around camp but still feeling like they're useful um and you've got to know your players i think to know the kind of support that they need in that situation um it's different when you're not in that professional bubble like if it was a a men's premiership team you've got more chance because that is their full-time job you can get them in you can get them involved you can keep them away if that's what they need um but i think in a program like how england was um and how the women's premiership teams are now, it's probably a bit more difficult to do that, like bespoke for that player. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely my sense. And uh, yeah, I had some good learnings early on where I got some feedback because I'd be awfully building relations where people could have some good conversations with me and stuff. And fairly early on in my coaching, I got some feedback that how people had felt. Um, they felt sort of second-class citizens a bit, that I'd forgotten about them a bit, didn't feel part of it. Uh, I was always really mindful, not to say that I did it that well, but I was definitely thinking about it. Like, how are people feeling that are not actually either being selected because of either form or rotation, but definitely around that injury stuff, stuff they can't control, which is, I guess that's kind of what you're talking about. It's- yeah, and if you're, um, <clears throat> if you're on a tour or you're in a campaign and you're, we used to call them non-playing reserves, so the kind of the spare parts. Um, I used to call them the rusty bullets and other things that I can't repeat on this show. Yes, I can imagine. Yeah. So that group and they always, they're always expected to be really super positive and they, they'll do all the jobs and they'll help everybody out. <clears throat> and you actually think like having, having been one of them and having not been one of them. Yeah. They're, they are as important as your starting 15, in my opinion, because they're there because you want them in your squad therefore why would you ever make them feel like 
they're not a part of that squad. We always talk about, oh, this hasn't just been a 23, this has been a 30-player a effort to get to this World Cup final or whatever. Well, then you should act out what you're saying as a, as a management staff. Like, you should be valuing every one of those players that's in the squad. And like you said there, like, people will feel left out. And some of that is the nature of the beast. But I think as probably as coaches, we can still do more to support them and not make them feel like that. Yeah, it is. And I guess it's, it's a bit around actions and words. So I'm always curious around what people say and then what I'm seeing. And I think that's good for people to feed back on. I think if nothing else, we just, we just fed back. I've heard this and I've seen that. And then often it'll be the same, which would be really helpful. But sometimes it's not. But I think we sometimes miss opportunities to feed back on that type of stuff. Um, go on, sorry. I was going to say we had... Um... We had a, must have been an autumn series, so three games a few years ago. And it was a, a mainly the same squad. There's a few people dipped in and out of, of the three games. And the final game they decided would be the, like the medal presentation. God knows why. So you didn't get, the winners and whatever, didn't get a medal on each game. It was the final game. Um, and I was one of the players that didn't play in that final game. So I think there was four of us, maybe five. And we weren't allowed up to the medal ceremony. So we, we just had to stand, I vividly remember standing at the bottom of the stairs at Twickenham. So we were told, no, you can't go up. And everybody else went up, got their medals. And we were like, oh, okay. I mean, I've played in the other two games, but um, cool. And yeah, we, we fed back as a group. And to be fair, the management went and got medals and, you know, made an apology and stuff. But I think it doesn't take away. I felt dreadful in that change room after the game. I was just like, oh, I couldn't have felt any less a part of the series win, um, even though I contributed, you know, in, in the two previous games. So two out of three. And I still, because of, you know, how that final game ended and my, my last memory of that series is that I wasn't a part of it. Um, yeah, I really struggled with that mentally. Some people got over it fairly quickly, but um, I don't get over those kinds of sort of touchy-feely things very quickly because they affect me quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you, the, the more you talk, the more you sound like Peter Walton. So I think if me and Peter had had that experience, I'd be like cheesed off for two or three days and would probably tell somebody Waltz would, Waltz would still be thinking about it now. He, yeah. would, be, he would think about it every day. Um, so no, I'll definitely get... And, and sometimes... You know, from an administrative point of view or planning a processing point of view, we kind of forget that type of stuff. When people spend a huge amount of time around culture, I mean, things like that can really harm your culture. You know, that can really get stuck into it. So I think it's a, big, it's a shout out for bringing everybody into this cultural piece. So those people who are from an RFU, and that's also something I noticed at the RFU a little bit, is that maybe some of the departments that are trying to create this amazing experience um, yeah, I'll probably coming from a slightly different, you know, direction, I guess. So the people had clearly not thought about actually, well, this is a whole squad. It's everybody needs to be involved in this. Everybody's contributed towards this. This is going to impact on how they've experienced this um, campaign, I guess. So, no, yeah, that's it was interesting. Definitely a one-off. Like that's never happened before. Um, or not to my knowledge, I guess maybe I've not been one of those non-playing reserves. So maybe I've not I've not seen it um, in the, like in the same way, but it's stuff like that definitely impacts me as a coach going forwards. I just think there's so much you've got to think about, 
yes, you've got the performance and the players that are in that starting squad. But if you want to have like a legacy and longevity and, you know, good mental health for your players, you've got to make sure that everybody feels valued, not just, you know, your top players or your, your starters. Yeah, that, that, that's one thing I was going to say. I don't know if this is just urban myth, but um, I'm going to say it anyway. So Exeter, um, the first meeting they have on a Monday morning is to, ce- is to celebrate the moments the week before where people have supported the team to win. So that could oh. be that could be somebody who has, you know, sort of won that, that famous bib where you just get whacked, you know, so you're sort of mimicking somebody else's behaviour. So, you know, you're... Yeah. You know, you're an open side flanker that gets over the ball and that's your role during the week. But they basically, that's what they do. They celebrate within their own organisation, within their team, the people who supported the team. So it's from the non-23 who have gone on to help the team win, which I, I think is awesome because, as you said, the word their value. It's about people being valued. I've contributed towards this team. Mm. So I'm, I might not have been in the 23, but there's a huge amount of contribution that's going to help the team win. I guess. Um, and I don't hear many of those stories. What's your best story around that, valuing the non-23? I'm sorry, I was just going to say on that, I think I think if you can do that and it comes across authentic, like authentically, then that's amazing. But the, <clears throat> there's definitely stuff where you, we used to, um, we used to name and then clap the non-playing reserves in our shirt presentation. And I always felt that that was quite, I just felt like those players probably <clears throat> were like, oh, thanks. Now you've drawn real attention to the fact that I've not been selected for this game. Um, so I think you can have really good ideas like that as coaches and, and management staff. But unless you've already got that kind of feeling, that buy-in of everyone that everybody does feel valued, I think it can sometimes seem like a bit of a token gesture, even though the intention is completely right. We, you know, we're, we're thanking everyone, we're applauding everyone. <clears throat> whether they're getting a shirt or not um yeah i i think if exeter do do that <clears throat> i hope that it's yeah that it is authentic and you know i'm sure it is um i just think yeah you gotta be careful with that yeah I, I mean i guess the thing that i like about x is is that the value in somebody's behavior or actions or stuff they've done to actually do it i guess that i can understand what you're thinking i'd probably think the same look right I'm the non-23. I, yeah. I, I don't actually want people to sort of like... So don't it, say my name. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's this... T- I hated the game. I can barely remember playing. But when I used to... Some stuff didn't go quite well and somebody used to come and pat me on the head or on the back and say, I used to like, seriously, mate. I, I, I like, I don't need that. I don't need you to like pretty go, this is the guy that dropped the ball. Everybody <laughs> in the crowd. I, 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 don't, I don't get that. However, I think if it comes from a good place and you've discussed it and you've shared it and, and, and you've agreed it, um, but yeah, it's a good shout out for you. Just just be mindful, just because your intent is good, it doesn't necessarily mean the outcome is going to be that helpful. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I yeah, think you're right. If it's an agreed, you know, everybody knows or everybody agrees to it, yeah, it's not just a, this is what we've decided because we're in charge of making these decisions. Actually, that kind of stuff should probably be coming directly from the players because they're the ones that are going to be living, breathing and feeling it. How do you want to be treated in this situation? You know, we value you. How can we, what will make you feel like you're valued in this situation? Because you are. So let's go. Let's go. No, I love it. 
I love the let's go. Just want to shift it a little bit to coaching. So you've, I mean, you've mentioned it a number of times. So you are transitioning. Um, however, you've done coaching for pretty much ever, ever since I've known you. You've, you've, you, uh, you've coached um, within a d- development role, within working with teams or individuals type stuff. So um, what have you noticed about coaching that's different from when you started to, what, to where you are now? What's the, you know, what's the best stuff that's happening now in coaching? Oh, God, that's a big question. Um, <clears throat> well, I basically started probably really at Newcastle Uni. So helping with the coaching when I was in my final year when I was captain, because that's sort of what you do at university. It's definitely at women's level. You, um, yeah, if you're the captain, you tend to do a bit of coaching. And then I sort of just stayed on and did some more coaching and then got a bit of a part-time job with the RFUW, as it was at the time, in terms of women, the women's and girls game. Um, and then I just found that I was coaching <laughs> and then was a community rugby coach. So I kind of fell into it. And, uh, and as you said, I've pretty much been doing it ever since. Um, what has changed? <laughs> Definitely the really easy stuff that you can just see is there was a lot more drills based activity so when I was a player when I I first started coaching we would do I think we'd do a lot more broken down this is this is a piece of the game and we're going to repeat it over and over again here um, until we've got it and then we're going to go into the game and probably not do it (laughs) Um, so there, yeah, it was definitely a lot more um, drill stuff. I then thought that we went into a massive, um, we've just got to do everything as games. Everything is a game. So a million different variations of touch um, is game because we've got to have decisions and we've got to have chaos. And I kind of felt that we went from one end of the spectrum to the complete opposite. And now I think we're sort of like, that's swinging in between and we're starting to get a better balance. I think between we need to do either for, for individuals or units or, or small parts of the game, we've got to kind of put a microscope on it and have a little look at it, but we can't do it in isolation away from what the actual game looks like. Um, obviously not everyone's doing this. Uh, some people are definitely still doing Auckland grids continuously for uh, 30 minutes at the start of the session. Um, but I, I think we kind of, I think as a game, we went through quite a, a, a big kind of spectrum of, of that kind of coaching. Uh, and hopefully now, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit more useful for the players, I think, hopefully. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, uh, and that's one thing I would have said, is, is, this, is this understanding that everything needs to fit into the game and make them play better on a Saturday so let's actually practice the game a little bit more clearly strip some stuff back and then as, as you've alluded to we might need to strip loads back and really focus around this microscopic type stuff that you spoke about but you've got to get it back in the game type stuff yeah. um, and I think probably there's a lot more kind of openness now around either using stuff from other sports or just being a bit more creative with our coaching rather than using the same stuff that everybody has done for a million years and as a coach you do it because that's how you were coached I do think there's a there's a lot more people trying to see well what can I learn from basketball or actually I'm just going to make something up that's never in my like I've never seen exist before it probably does um but I'm just going to make it up because 
these are the outcomes I want. So these are the rules I'm going to put in the game and I'm going to see what happens. Um, and I think that's, as a, as a coach, that excites me a bit more that it's not just, here's your coaching book, open it up, day one, page one, this is what you have to do. Um, you know, we're all still learning, even as the coach and in charge of people, you've got to have an open mind that you're going to get stuff wrong and you're going to try something and it's going to go not how you want it to go. And that's okay because you're going to make mistakes just like a player's going to drop a ball and they didn't mean to, just like you might not mean to not quite get your point across in a game. And as long as you can go away and reflect on it and change it for the better, then it's not, in my opinion, it's not a negative thing. It's actually a massive positive if you can learn from that. Um, and I, yeah, the, the more kind of coaches that I've come across as, as I've moved into a coach development role, I think there's a lot more people who, who want to do things differently and want to do things better. Um, and yeah, open to a lot more ideas, which is exciting, I think, rather than boring and closed-minded. Yeah, it is. And, and I guess it, it's, in some ways it's easier around the you know, webinars and podcasts. There's, there's now a lot of opportunities. That's what COVID's given us, definitely, is a, yeah. a chance probably to just a bit of time, so some time to reflect and take sense, probably to gather some more knowledge and information. Uh, hopefully an opportunity to make some sense of it as well. And then clearly what's happening now is, is they can go and sort of apply some stuff. Um, and, and it isn't just want to pick up on the last point as well, because clearly coaches are, um, you know, in terms of their environments they're creating for the players, which is, you know, they're really stretching them. There's lots of opportunities for them to explore and try stuff, stuff not going well. And yet they don't necessarily do that that well as from their coaching point of view. And you mentioned the word reflect. I mean, if I could, if, if I could give any nudges to coaches or listen to this, it's around giving yourself time in the moment as in at the end of the session or during the session, to reflect. And again, I think COVID's given us this because you, everybody's going to go and wash their hands every 15 minutes. Yeah. It's a great natural break for you to check in as coaches and go, right, what, what have you noticed? I didn't do that very well. You know, all that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, just from your role of, from an RFU now, so put your RFU hat back on as one of the coach developers. Mm -hmm. uh, the Fab Five, as we're now called them earlier. Um, so... I mean, well, what's the sort of stuff that you guys are going to be focusing on? Is a, is a, yeah. So we're um, a lot around the kind of program content. So um, the well, the names have changed actually. The the old sort of level three and four, which are now going to be uh, advanced coaching award, and I better get this right, haven't I? Performance coaching. Um, so yeah. The, Again, names always change, don't they? Just like role names have changed. Um, so looking at the content there, trying to... It's, it's one of those things where you'll try and update something, but by the time it's been passed through and you've got the branding and you've done it, you almost need to... It's almost like a continuous cycle, I think, for, you know, for these courses that that sort of old level four takes eight, at least 18 months to complete. So there's going to be new stuff and, you know, more 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 information, more theories, more sort of changes in the game that I just think it, it's probably going to be a never ending cycle of trying to, trying to make sure that those courses stay current and, you know, they're, they're the ones that should be really stretching coaches and challenging them um, and, you know, potentially changing the way people think, um, hopefully for the better. So um, it's, yeah, it seems like, oh, you're just doing some content, but I, I honestly, I don't see how it can ever stop. I don't see how those type of courses can just 
be and stay i think my personal opinion is that um we've always got to be looking at you know who we can bring in to help support those coaches and challenge them and maybe get them to think yeah maybe get them to think differently so a lot of that which is very busy Fletch, very busy um and then it'll be around um mentoring as well so um which is i'm quite excited about hopefully trying to um help bring through some talent especially for me i'd really like to get some more um females sort of through that pathway and not just with a tick box you've got a qualification brilliant but actually to get some real experience of of coaching within that kind of performance world um which we i still don't think we've got um in the female game so that's kind of i've given myself that remit um, it is actually part of the rfus um you know they're really looking at diversity and inclusion within that coaching area so um hopefully i'll get the chance to make a positive impact in that area as well yeah and it's clearly hugely important for the girls game which is which is thriving in terms of numbers you know it's going up uh, i'm at a club where i'm there two or three times a week at every session there's girls um so there's, you know, there's, there's, there's girls uh, training at various age groups. It's really, really strong. There's a great buzz. I think it's added significantly to the buzz of the club. Um, however, the, all coaches are men. Uh, yeah. there, isn't, uh, there isn't a female coach. And females need, well, no matter, it's not females. Um, players need role models, um, you know, for it truly to be. So, so what sort of strategies are you thinking about what's going to be happening around developing female coaches? So getting a bit more detail about it. It's a good question. Um, I only started like 10 days ago. <laughs> um, I, had to do, um, I had to do a bit of a presentation on it for my interview for the job, actually. Just, I think, like you said, that, that role model bit's really important, but it's also not important to some people. So I started playing rugby, not because I saw any females playing rugby, but because my brother played and I watched his team of all boys playing and at no point did I think, well, I shouldn't play that because I'm not seeing any women play it. I just was like, oh, that's cool. I want to play that game. Um, so for me personally, and there must be other people in the world um, like me, some people I think you have to see someone like you, that role model piece, to be able to, to feel that you could do it. And then for the other group, I think there just needs to be the opportunity. So for me, a women's team happened to start at my brother's club. And that was my that was my way in. And then I was like, oh, cool. Women play rugby. Cool. I'm going to join the team. Oh, there's an England women's team. And that was the kind of how my brain worked and my thought process. So I think it's twofold. I think you're right. We have to get role models out there, but we have to support those role models. You can't just chuck a load of female coaches into the professional game and go, we've got role models, brilliant, bring your women, let's all go. They've got to, you know, they've got to be supported to make sure that they can, they're prepared to do that job and they can do the best job that they can. Just like you wouldn't want to throw a male coach into that environment that didn't have that experience or didn't have that support um, because ultimately they're going to fail. Um, and unfortunately, if you're, if you're kind of, if you're really selling that role model piece, you don't want them to fail for many reasons because it's not very nice for them as, a, as an individual. But also, if you've put all your eggs into that basket, I think you need to make sure that that person who you're putting on a bit of a kind of platform has got the support that they need. Um, and then the other side is that opportunity bit. 
I'm all for this kind of, I call it work experience, whatever you want to call it, shadowing, going and standing around and watching what people are doing. I think we've got to get those female coaches the opportunity to go and see what that world looks like, see how they might fit into it, see what they could bring, see what they would take out um, and give them opportunities within those environments. So, yeah. That's that's just my personal opinion. Obviously, I don't know how we're going to do this. There are a few whys, but um, that was sort of what I, I said in my interview was, I think we've got to kind of come at it twofold, really. Yeah, and it's, yeah I mean, that all sounds absolutely... Com- and I'm sure you're doing this anyway to connect with the sports who are probably a little bit more or further down the line. So hockey would be a little bit further down the line. Mm-hmm. So it, hockey's probably seen as a you know male and female sport. Rugby's probably yeah. come to it a bit later around the female element to it so um and lots of sports are having this you know coaching certainly within so, is sort of mixed gender sports has you know has is probably there's been a real focus the vast majority of coaches are men so it's a um so i'm sure you guys are hanging out with lots of different sports as well um i am conscious of time that's been amazing we always finish with some one word answers Oh, I think we should start with it because it's kind of my fa- it's one of my favorite bits. So I'm going to I'm going to say one word. You're going to tell me one word, um, which is the first word that comes in your head. Don't swear. So sometimes people let themselves down. Okay, I'm going to start with Dolly Morden Park. I can't give you the first word that comes into my head. <laughs> Love. England rugby. Passion. Phil Kearns. <laughs> Boss. <laughs> Family. Oh, love again. Your first cap for England. Scary. Coaching. Development. 2014 World Cup. Didn't take my medal off for seven days. Hyphenated <laughs> into one word. <laughs> no. Newcastle University Beer <laughs> uh, Scrum oh. Tight <laughs> Rusty Crazy <laughs> Yeah that's the first word I could have mind And last one <laughs> The future Exciting yeah, cool. Awesome. Tom, I could talk to you all day. Uh, I, I, I love your insight. Clearly had some awesome experiences. I love the way how you think about stuff. You clearly do a lot of thinking. Um, Not while I'm always... dog walking. Though, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Other than when you're walking the dog. Um, best of luck with, with what's going to happen with the RFU. It's, you know, clearly there's, you know, there's been a change. Um, onwards and upwards is, is something that was always sort of ingrained in me a bit um i think it's some amazing opportunities for 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 yourselves and i'm really excited the rfu are sort of shining the light a little bit more around coaching um which is obviously exciting for you and me uh well thanks for very much have a great day really appreciate you taking the time cheers (laughs) let